Welcome to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series, where leading white collar practitioners discuss hot topics and emerging trends in government investigations and enforcement. Last month, the Women's Bar Association of the District of Columbia along with the Hispanic Bar Association of the District of Columbia and the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of the District of Columbia, hosted a very special event with the Securities and Exchange Commission's Director of Enforcement, Gerbeer Gruel. At that event, I had the privilege of moderating a discussion with Director Gruel. In our one-on-one, in-person conversation, Director Gruel spoke openly about the SEC's current approach to enforcement. He offered candid insights on everything from cooperation credit to crypto enforcement. Because the SEC Director of Enforcement's views undoubtedly are of interest to white-collar practitioners, this episode of Line of Defense excerpts key parts of my conversation with Director Gruel. I'm sure our Line of Defense listeners will benefit from hearing about the SEC's current enforcement philosophy straight from the Director of Enforcement. Thank you for listening. Let's talk a little bit about securities enforcement and get into some substance I'm sure some people are interested in hearing about. At various times, the commission has described its enforcement philosophy in various ways. We've had broken windows. We've had focus on Main Street versus Wall Street, among various other things. At the present time, what is the SEC's enforcement philosophy? How would you articulate the animating principle? Sure. Uh, You know, I very much believe that if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And so I, I really have two animating principles in in the way I think about the work we do, and there's a little bit more to it. Um, But the two broad principles are that we are obviously here to ensure that investors across the country are protected. At the same time, the way we go about investor protection, the animating principle for me uh, in that regard is making sure that we're doing everything we can to restore trust in our financial markets and institutions. Because, Because both in my experience as AG and my experience now, I've seen an erosion in trust in large institutions, including the government, but also including financial institutions. And that erosion in trust, that decline in trust is bad for all of us. It's bad for everybody who's playing by the rules, because if everyday Americans don't trust the system, they're not going to invest their hard-earned cash into the markets. They're not going to put their savings into the markets. And that's bad for capital formation. It's bad for fair and efficient markets. And they're a lot of causes for this decline in trust. And for me, it comes down to this perception that we, the regulators, are not holding accountable large institutions who who have violated the rules. We're not holding accountable powerful actors and firms who violated the rules. And it's also based on repeated lapses by gatekeepers, by people entrusted with making sure that people play within the rules. And all that's also led to this perception that there are two sets of rules perhaps out there, you know, one for for the big and powerful and one for everyone else. And so to counter that decline in trust, to enhance that trust and to ensure investor protection, we want to focus on three things. One is robust enforcement, making sure that we cover that traditional securities waterfront, which is broad and deep as effectively as we can and with a sense of urgency. You probably saw this in your experience. Every director comes in and says, we're going to do it bigger. We're going to do it better. We're going to do it faster. The reality is that our cases take a long time from 
the initiation of an investigation to the conclusion on average over two years. And so that mistrust when there's a violation that perhaps is in the news cycle that people don't see a resolution for, for two years, that mistrust grows in that window. And so we need to work with a sense of urgency. We need to find efficiencies in our process. We need to speed things up. And so we are trying to improve internal processes. We're trying to push the defense bar to move more quickly. We're trying to make sure that, you know, Wells meetings are an important part of the process. They are important. There have been many Wells meetings where people have come in and made a case where we've decided to walk away from a particular investigation. But there are also Wells meetings where it just adds to the delay and there's no factual disputes. There's no issues of programmatic uh, significance where that meeting was had at the director level, the regional director level, or at the associate level. There's not a need to have it at the deputy or, or the director level. So we're trying to speed up things in that regard. The other part of robust enforcement is making sure we're being proactive about new risk and things that are important to investors today, which every day things are changing. You know, ESG is important to investors today. Crypto is, a, is obviously front and center. Yeah, so we want to make sure we're ahead of emerging threats and, and addressing risk in those spaces as well. So that's robust enforcement. Remedies, you know, we want to make sure we're using all the tools in our toolkit to deter bad conduct, and that includes penalties. Uh, it includes prophylactic remedies, like injunctive relief, whether it's conduct-based injunctions or the like. Uh, and it also means, in, in certain cases, admissions. And we could talk about that uh, a little bit more. But in addition to that, we also have to realize we can't do it alone. So we want to create this culture of robust and proactive compliance. And that requires uh, gatekeepers. It requires compliance officers to do their part in helping develop policies that address risk in their businesses. And these policies can't just be checked the box. You know, we're, we brought actions for books and records violations recently where folks just had check the box policies. It, it was great. You had the policy, but you weren't implementing it. It wasn't bespoke to the risk in your space. And so through those types of enforcement actions, uh, we want to make sure that participants are addressing risk and putting in place proactive compliance uh, measures. And so, you know, that's sort of the broad framing through which I, I view the work that we're doing and that that we've been trying to message to the staff. And it's working. It's working because the conversation is changing internally. And, and to your point, there's always a degree of whiplash. New director comes in and says, now we're doing it this way. And now we're doing it this way. And I feel for the staff. Because it changes constantly, and it takes some, it takes time to change uh, how we're addressing um, settlements. And so, I know the defense bar is also feeling it. But it, it's important for us to be clear in our public statements and consistent now in the messaging internally in the direction we're heading in this administration. Thank you for elaborating. And there's a lot in there that I want to unpack. Yeah. So you hit on a number of topics that I think are important ones to follow up on. Uh, you mentioned corporate enforcement, and this has been a hot issue with the Department of Justice lately as the corporate enforcement individual accountability policy has changed a great deal over the years. And, and we're now on the Monaco memo. And the SEC, of course, is independent and isn't bound mm -hmm. by DOJ um, guidelines. But Chair Gensler has indicated that the Monaco memo is consistent with his view of corporate enforcement. So can you talk about how that's playing out in practice at the SEC? What's the division asking of corporations under investigation to disclose about individuals? Sure. I mean, nothing. Yeah, I know the DOJ policy has gone from the Yates memo you know, to the Monaco memo uh, or gone back to the Yates memo rather through the Monaco memo. 
Uh, nothing's changed at the SEC. I, I think, you know, for, for as long as I can see in, in the data that we have, we've held individuals accountable. Corporations uh, and firms act through individuals, and 70% of our resolutions include individuals. And that goes back, you know, however many years. That's always been the case. So we have held individuals accountable, and we will continue to do so. And we hold corporate actors accountable. Um, you know, the expectation when we're investigating a corporation when it comes to cooperation is we expect you know, full cooperation. And that's, you know, reveal if they've identified wrongdoing and they want credit for their cooperation, that's going to mean identifying individuals. And so nothing's changed on our end. And I think that's what the chair was alluding to, that we've always held individuals accountable and we'll continue to do that. If, you know, past performance is in any indicator, the future results will be the same. (laughs) (laughs) What about uh, corporate recidivism? How are you looking at that and making charging decisions? Yeah, I I think you'll see that in in our penalties. it's definitely a factor. It's definitely something front of mind for this commission as we have recidivist actors. And, and I'm not talking about like get a minor violation here, the next violation, if it's completely different, that you know, that's different, right? Um, but if you have a series of minor violations and a big violation, then all that should be uh, taken into account. If you have a repeat player who seems to be pricing in a penalty as the cost of doing business, that's not what penalties are for. And so what we've talked to the staff about is, yeah, comps are great. You know, look at comparables, but comps should be a starting point in your discussions uh, when you're looking at settlement or a recommendation, uh, not the the end point. Because mm-hmm. to me, and maybe this is you know, sort of my lack of experience in the security space, I worked as a federal prosecutor in the Economic Crimes Unit. And when you do that, you see a very narrow sliver of the securities uh, world. You see, you know, the, the anti-fraud violations. But there's so much more. And that was one of the biggest surprises when I got here. You know, so many people leave a U.S. attorney's office and hang a shingle and go to a firm and put securities litigator on their bio. That's not you you don't really learn this world till you work at the SEC. Mm -hmm. And I think when I got here and I started to see this and when people, you know, and so I wasn't exposed to the practice either, you know, where, where people come in for a Wells meeting and they give you a chart of prior violations and they say, oh, you know, in the 20 prior cases that you had, your violation was X. And so in this case, it should be X as well. Or the 10 you know, prior times we got tagged for this violation, we only paid you know, Y. It should be Y here. And, and to me, and again, maybe this is just the prosecutor in me, that just signals that the prior penalties weren't working in, in changing conduct or deterring bad mm-hmm. behavior. So we need to ratchet it up. So that's how I, I view recidivism. You know, we need to be very thoughtful in the remedies that we're pursuing. And so whether it's the penalties or the injunctive relief or the use of compliance consultants, um, you know, we're, all options are on the table to make sure we're rooting out bad behavior or, or ultimately pulling somebody's ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something you may see from us. Okay. Thank you. You, you touched on cooperation. Um, are, are there any recent resolutions that demonstrate how the cooperation program is operating now and how the seaboard factors are being applied? Yeah, you know, we've been trying to, and this is really uh, thanks to rooms like this one when we have back and forth with defense counsel that we're not always clear on what type of behavior earns cooperation credit. So one of the things I've taken away from these conversations is that we should highlight where a, a company's cooperation resulted in no penalty, where their cooperation resulted in a reduced penalty. I mean, obviously, we can't message out when their cooperation resulted in no charges. Um, 
but where it resulted in no penalties, we need to make that clear. And so there have been a handful recently uh, where we've been deliberate and intentional about messaging that out, that this was a, a, you know, when you talk about Seaboard, it was a company that was self-policing, that did self-report and then didn't self-remediate and did cooperate and, and touched on all the Seaboard factors. And because of that, we are seeking no penalty in this particular case. I, I don't remember the uh, names offhand, but there's been two in the last several months. Uh, and then last year, I think we had the BMW um, resolution, which was in the midst of the pandemic, or two years ago, in the midst of a pandemic, BMW really sped up our investigation by identifying individuals who weren't on our radar, by translating documents and making witnesses available you know, through Zoom during the height of the pandemic. And so those types of steps really uh, resulted in a reduced penalty in that particular case. So that's the type of cooperation that we're looking for that we think merits uh, no penalty. It's not you know, when somebody just walks in and says, hey, you know, we gave you all the documents you asked for. Hey, we brought in our witnesses that you, you wanted to talk to. You know, just doing the bare minimum and, and complying with legal process is not cooperation. That's just that's responding to process. Uh, but you know, short-circuiting our investigation, identifying individuals that weren't on our radar, going above and beyond, uh, having the policies in place on the front end, the self-policing, self-reporting, all of those things we're trying to message out because that's the benefit of coming in. And we want to make sure people, we're, we're being clear on that in our public statements and our, in our OIPs as well. Okay. Well, on the other end of the conduct spectrum, what are some factors that influence whether the division seeks admissions and settlements? Yeah, you know, uh, the other thing that's different in this job from when I was the attorney general of New Jersey is that, you know, probably three and a half years, I gave, I don't know, 300 speeches or so or public uh, appearances. And I don't think I, I ever generated a single law firm client alert or bulletin. Uh, I came here and, you know, I spoke. SEC Speaks, I think, was my first event. And oh boy, I mean, it was like the words are parsed and, and law firm bulletins are generated. And, and I think I mentioned admissions and as, it was as if I said something like, you know, sort of new. Uh, this is the same policy that's been in place uh, since Chair White and Director Sresny in 2013, I believe. And it's the same factors. Uh, we're going to seek admissions when the conduct uh, merits it when there, you know, investor harm is great, when there's a heightened need for public accountability, when we need to clearly articulate to market participants certain conduct that, that's running afoul of the rules, because there's nothing as attention-grabbing as admissions. And so in the case in which we sought admissions recently, it was the one I alluded to earlier, was uh, J.P. Morgan Securities. In that particular case, uh, it was a books and records violation, and this is all in the order, we identified during the course of pending investigations uh, that when we went to look for documents or ask for documents and communications from JPMS, they didn't have it. But we were able to identify those documents from other parties that were, were participants in those conversations. And so there were huge gaps. And what became apparent was that big groups at the firm were engaging in off-channel communications. This was not pandemic-related because it started before the pandemic and continued into the pandemic. Going on WhatsApp, uh, using personal texts, using personal emails to communicate about deals and, and the like. And so that's a big deal because books and records requirements are core. And as an investigator, again, maybe this is my prosecutor side kicking in, we have to be able to go when there's an allegation of wrongdoing get those documents and see what happened and hold wrongdoers accountable if there is a violation 
in that particular case. And so as we began to unpack it, it was widespread. Again, they had the, the policies, but they didn't implement them. And it was clearly a problem across the industry. And so when you want to send a message to the industry, you get admissions, you had a nine-figure settlement for $125 million, and you had an order that really laid out the misconduct. But at the same time, the order also showed what remediation looks like, because JPMS took the right steps, put in place the right procedures, put in place the right technology afterwards to make sure it didn't happen again. And so we wanted to message that out more broadly to broker-dealers like JPMS that we're looking at this and that this is the time to self-report. And we set up an email box inbox at the time. And so that was the intention there with admissions, that type of penalty, that type of resolution. And, and so we're looking you know, deeply in that space. And, and we'll look at you know asset managers and, and the advisor space as well, because these problems exist elsewhere as well. And again, it's foundational. And one of the other things Director Serezny said, when you obstruct our process and take steps that obstruct our process, admissions might be required in those types of cases. And so that was one of those cases as well. Let's talk about data analytics and enforcement. Is data analytics a lead generator or is it evidence? In other words, do you use it to prove up cases or is it an investigative tool? How do you see it? Uh, It's both. It's both. Uh, for sure, you know, we use it for case generation. You know, if there's a merger announcement and you see suspicious trading activity, uh, that's a traditional area where we've used data analytics uh, to further investigations to jumpstart them. In some cases, it's part of the proof in that case as well, in that insider trading case. Uh, when you look at the trading activity, if it's out of the norm, somebody's never traded in options, uh, all the traditional hallmarks, and you couple that with phone records and and things of that nature, because a lot of those cases are built on circumstantial evidence. In other cases, uh, an initiative that the commission had was the EPS initiative, the earnings uh, per share initiative. Uh, So for quarterly uh, earnings announcements, uh, there were certain metrics that we were able to look at, some data points we were able to look at that, based on the work of certain academics, indicated that there might be a high probability that there was some gaming of the numbers in a particular case. And so that would lead us to an investigation and we would identify if there was misconduct in that space. So it's it's both. In certain cases, it generates and leads the investigation. In other cases, it leads and is proof that we would introduce a trial. Okay. Um, as director of enforcement, you observe the interplay of the financial markets and the rule of law. So what keeps you up at night? <laughs> what do you see in your role that causes you concern? I mean, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot. Uh, you know, I think of late, certainly new and emerging areas. Um, the crypto space is one where, you know, the question is, all: are we doing enough to protect investors here? Um, private funds is probably another right now for me. You know, this is a, a space and, and exams just uh, issued its report on priority areas and private funds was one. But there's uh, been a 70% increase in the amount of assets under management in the private fund space, I think since 2017. Uh, It's $18 trillion in assets under management in the private fund space. And this space, there's a lot of opacity here. And that opacity and and sort of the attendant information asymmetries have led historically to fee and expense allocation issues, has led to conflict of interest issues. And we brought cases historically there uh, and has led to valuation issues. So this is a place where now more and more institutional investors are putting money. 
endowments, uh, pension funds. And so everyday Americans also have exposure here. And, you know, the case we brought recently against James Valisaris, uh, the chief investment officer of Infinity Q Capital Management, is a prime example. Through blatantly fraudulent conduct, as we allege in that complaint, it's a, it's a litigated matter. It was a you know, mismarking case, but overvalued a fund by a billion dollars, by a billion dollars, and generated tens of millions of dollars in fees as a result. And a lot of potential investor harm if it weren't for the diligent work for the staff that really, from an exam referral, was able to identify what was happening here. And we're able to preserve a lot of assets and start getting those monies back to investors in that fund. But that's a space we're acutely focused, uh, and the commission is as well, through rulemaking that's going to bring increased transparency. Uh, if those rules are adopted when it comes to fees issues, allocation of expense issues, uh, and conflict of interest issues. But that's, given the rapid growth and, and the opacity there, that's a space uh, where I have a lot of concern that now everyday Americans through pension funds may be exposed to a lot of risk. Okay. You also touched on crypto, and I know that's a very hot button issue right now. Um, and the securities laws have always been flexible and adaptive. And the SEC recently has said that how the federal securities laws apply to digital assets depends on the facts and circumstances. But when the applicability of a regulatory regime is facts and circumstances based, and, and that depends in some degree on how the facts and circumstances are interpreted by the SEC or interpreted by a court, does that create uncertainty and risk for market participants? And if so, what advice do you have for market participants as they navigate that potential uncertainty in crypto? You know, I, I don't think so. I, I, I push back a, a little bit there. One thing that's become apparent to me, if, if there's one thing we're not guilty of, it's the element of surprise at the SEC. <laughs> Uh, you know, you look at the rule sets that we have, you know, the, the definition of securities goes back to the 1930s and to include investment contracts and notes. In the 1940s, you have Howie defining investment contracts. And that definition, as you know from your experience, has been applied to a whole range of, of investment mm-hmm. contracts, the whole range. So, I mean, you're never going to have a list where people are going to be able to say, oh, is it one of these or one of those? You, there's a degree of rigor and analysis that has to be done no matter what. In 1990, uh, the Supreme Court defined uh, the test for, for a note, whether when a note constitutes a security. So these tests have existed for a long time. Uh, the commission has made public statements when it comes to crypto assets as to what the framework for analysis is in the Dow report. Uh, and we've been very thoughtful and I've always said that we look at not what you label a product, but the economic realities of it. And that's that's true in crypto and it's true in anything else. So to me, it doesn't matter if you call it a stable coin, if you call it a utility token, if you call it a governance token, you have to dig into what the economic realities are. And all the, the skilled lawyers at this firm and other firms, you do this analysis for your clients when they come to you and, and they ask you, do we need to register? I mean, it's not like you have to think about what tests we're going to apply here. I mean, my wife's a medical professional. I think maybe because I probably say to my sleep all the time, she could recite the Howie test, right? It's And so, you know, it, it, there's no element of surprise here. And so I think, uh, so I bristle at that when it's we get this enforcement by regulation, a regulation by enforcement criticism, and people claim to be surprised as to, you know, something constituting a, a security or not. Uh, and so, you know, I sort of push back on that. I think the rules are pretty darn clear right now. 
Okay. Um, what do you want your legacy uh, as director of enforcement to be? How do you want to be remembered and what do you want your impact to be? <laughs> it's nine months in and the legacy question. <laughs> uh, uh, well, hopefully that'll be lasted more than nine months. Uh, no, you know, um, it's interesting. When I was AG, you know, I thought about this a lot. And then I thought about this as a, I was leaving that job. You know, I really wanted to make sure that during my time there as attorney general, I did everything that I could to protect the residents of the state, to improve the lives of the residents of my state. And at the same time, to make sure that I was doing everything possible to make sure we were taking care of the public servants that allowed us to do the work that we did there. And I think it's similar here. I want to make sure that when I look back at this experience, that I did everything that I could, even on those nights where I couldn't fall asleep thinking about where, you know, the next, you know, crisis is going to be that, that we did everything possible to protect investors, that we worked with a sense of urgency. And at the same time, did we take care of the folks who were doing the work? Were we mindful of them? Because that, that gets lost a lot of times. I, I could be a great enforcement person externally, but if, if we're not taking care of our folks and making sure they're getting the experience and developing uh, great attorneys and making sure the quality of life and quality of work for them is addressed, um, then we're not doing our jobs either. And that's an important part of the work that we do. And so I think it's those things, you know, and it's cliche. And a lot of people say this when they're asked this question, but you know, also, did you leave it better than you found it? And I think that's, you know, as cliche as that is, that's what I want to do. And it's challenging. I had great predecessors. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for listening to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series. Please join us for future episodes. And remember, we always stand ready to be your line of defense.